Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Good morning, everyone. Happy Valentine's Day. And thank you very much for being here this morning. Um, I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm not a Dharma teacher. I, it's just, just me, Kate. Um, but I have read a few books about this issue. Today's Dharma talk is called Our Path and Climate Change. And Lars, Rick, and I just completed yesterday an eco-sattva training program together. So I think that is why um, that is all of the authority that I have to be talking about this, <laughs> uh, just to be clear. <laughs> um, and I want to start with a quote. This is a book, Mindfully Facing Climate Change by Bhikkhu Analayo, who is a Theravadan monk who teaches and studies at the Barry Center in Massachusetts. And this is the opening of the foreword to the book written by James Beres, who is a Dharma teacher in Berkeley, California. As a Dharma teacher who is very concerned about climate, I have been aware for some time that practitioners are often resistant to hearing Dharma talks on this subject. I have been told at times that the topic is too political and off point. They have come to hear the teachings to be comforted in order to address their own personal suffering and hardly want to be asked to take on even more. They understandably seek to escape from the intensity and bombardment of sensational news filled with acrimony, divisiveness, and fear that one must work hard to avoid. But I wonder about the contradiction of engaging in practice while avoiding the truth. Okay, so that is a Dharma teacher, <laughs> which I am not. Uh, this is a really tough issue to talk about. And for the reasons enumerated here, I don't wanna to talk to you about it. And yet I wanna to talk to you about it because I love you. So it's really hard to talk about this without the audience perceiving some kind of pressure on them. So that may just happen. Something I say may feel like a push. I don't intend it, but I wanna say that up front. And I wanna remind everyone that this is a safe space. Every reaction, every emotion, every experience, every thought that comes up for you during this talk is absolutely, absolutely welcome here and should be here. This topic often brings up grief, guilt, anxiety, shame, worry, fear, um, blame, uh, dread, despair, helplessness, numbness. All of these things are very, very common. So they're all welcome here. I am not going to give a scientific talk, although I'm going to start with some information. And I invite you today to pay extra attention to bodily sensations. I want to define what I talk about when I say climate change. I mean the current and projected climate and ecological crises. I mean environmental justice. And I mean the unsustainable way that we live on this planet. This issue brings a lot of confusion, self-judging, judging of others. It seems like it's about me, my American carbon footprint is greater than that of a European's who has an equal standard of living, and it's multitudes greater than an African's carbon footprint. But still, there are people wealthier than I who produce more emissions than I, and there are people worse off than I. Um, there are poor people, black people, and brown people who suffer the health impacts of living near current fossil fuel infrastructure. And also, it's not about me. There are a hundred companies who are linked to 
70% of global historical emissions. There's 100 companies in the entire earth. Are they accountable? Who can hold them accountable? What about China? What about methane? Ah! I am done with saying those things. Okay, I wanna say yes to all of this. Yes to all of these questions. Yes to all of these concerns. This is all part of it. Nothing I just said is, is wrong or right to wonder or ask about. It's a problem as large and complex as the planet. There's an organization project drawdown that has done the most comprehensive assessment of climate solutions and how impactful each solution is. There are 100 solutions in the book. I can do maybe eight of those things by myself, eight of 100. And they're not even the highest impact, even if everyone did them. I'm not trying to bum anyone out uh, about the scale of the problem. I hope that I am conveying that this is a truly individual and collective transformation that needs to take place in order to keep our planet in this zone supporting the most life. In the interest of doing no harm, we Buddhists always wanna take care of the planet in this moment. We're very much this present moment oriented people. But our beloved Sangha of scientists are clear that we face catastrophes in the future. So a fully individual and fully collective issue that is future focused, what is Buddhism gonna say about that? I'd like to go to some early teachings um, and some later teachings to talk about how Buddhism would frame this issue and diagnose this problem. There is an early teaching called the simile of the elephant's foot, footprint. The simile is that the four noble truths are like an elephant's footprint. All of the other teachings are like a smaller animal's footprint. They can all be covered by the larger teaching of the four noble truths. Within this discourse, it is mentioned that the body is made up of four elements, earth, water, fire, and wind. All of the elements are both internal and external. Internal earth is bones, muscles, hair, teeth. External earth is soil, mountains, rocks. Internal water is lymph, blood, tears. External water is rivers, lakes, oceans. And I'm quoting from the teaching now. Now, both the internal earth property and the external earth property are simply earth property. And that should be seen and it has come to be with right discernment. This is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. Biko and Alayo has done an analysis of this discourse and shown that not only are our bodies and the whole earth around us made up, of a, made up of exactly the same stuff, but we are not separate due to our dependence on the elements that are external for the sustenance of the elements that are internal. We need to eat food, earth. We need to drink water, water. We need to breathe, wind. And we need to maintain our temperature, fire, to survive. Neither internal nor external elements are me or mine. They just are. And we work talking about the doctrine of no self pretty often, but I wonder if upon investigation, we find that we have turned earth element, external earth element into mine, my yard, my favorite park, my beach. And sometimes we other nature, ew, gross, seaweed, ew, whatever, ugh, gross, you know, we other it. It is, it is not us. And making mine and othering are both ego imputations on what is all just elements. The elements are also equally impermanent in us and on the earth. All of it is of a nature to arise, abide, and pass away. 
and we'll come back to that. There are a lot of early Buddhist texts that are prescriptions for monks how to live um, and how to be in community, lots of rules. Uh, there are plenty that mention that liberation will not happen if the monks are not properly nourished and if they're not in the right environment. Uh, it's noting that environment matters to meditation for liberation, which is the project of especially early Buddhism. Caring for their environment is caring for themselves and their practice. There is no separation. Plenty of examples of that. Also, the Buddha even advocated composting. There's one specific teaching where, you know, if there's leftover food, it should be put out in this way so that it cares for the sentient beings that are around. So the Buddha was for composting. From a different generation of Buddhism, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about interbeing. If you are a, and I'll, I'll quote from him now, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating on this piece of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter are. We have the teaching of interbeing. There is also a very relevant teaching early teaching called the discourse of the world ruler. A corrupt ruler overcome by greed, aversion and delusion rules the people poorly, leading to poverty, which leads to crime, which leads to murder, which eventually leads to the land suffering. And the consequences are the crops fail and animals leave. It paints the picture of an entire ecosystem with its human components degrading because of the greed, aversion, and delusion taking root. At the end of the story, morality among the people recovers, then the ecology recovers, and eventually people return and begin to thrive, and then the population begins to increase. In the Chinese translation of that story, it is explicitly meta and compassion that is the turning point. A group who fled the city's violence commit to each other that they will not harm one another. And they become the beginnings of the return of that civilization and the return of the ecosystem. So the early Buddhist understanding of our place on the earth is that we're interconnected with earth, we're dependent upon it, and we are the same as it. Another way to look at it is through the Mahayana lens of the Heart Sutra. And may I say, I am way out of my depth right now <laughs> on the Heart Sutra. <laughs> the main teaching is emptiness is form and form is emptiness. I'm gonna paraphrase and then quote from a Zen teacher named David Loy who works on, um, on climate change. Emptiness is the unlimited potentiality which is formless, but generative. Phenomena are the forms which are generated, and now I'm quoting from him, according to conditions and change as those conditions change. This is important because it means that the goal of Buddhist practice is not to dwell serenely in pure possibility. That is, it's not, the goal to cling to emptiness. The goal is for our innate potential to manifest in ways that are wise and compassionate because they contribute to the well being of its forms, including the manifold species of the biosphere. So that was dense. I'm going to try to summarize. We are these forms, nature, trees, we are these forms. The well-being of all phenomena, all the life that we see, that's, that's a temporary exchange of matter and energy and the elements. We're meant to optimize the well-being of the many forms and to recognize suffering 
so as to lessen it with wisdom and with compassion. That's what David Loy is saying. So we're not, we're not there. We're not in the ultimate wise, compassionate, fully awakened, always aware of our interbeing, aware of causes and conditions and always fully caring for ourselves and one another. We're, we're not there. Something is in our way. A Buddhist diagnosis for the climate crisis is that there is delusion on a global scale, a delusion that we are separate. There is also plenty of greed and aversion going on as well. Now, if you remember the discourse of the world ruler, that's exactly the situation that the Buddha described. The humans allowing greed, aversion, and delusion to take its root, deg degrading their civilization until it degrades their ecosystem. So well done, Buddha, 2,500 years ago, when there were only 100 million people on the earth, it's estimated. Now we have 7.8 billion. And in our world today, this delusion and the greed and the aversion are institutionalized. They're in our economy, they're in the sort of perverse incentive systems of our governments, and they're in our culture, they're there. We are all, all of us caught in this toxic system, similar to how racism is ubiquitous and institutionalized in the US. We talked a lot about this over the summer, the sort of, it's, in, it's like the water you're swimming in and you can't, you don't even know you're swimming in water. It can be very hard to see. I have no idea the harm I may be causing somewhere else to someone else or something else when I go about my average American life. It's not right in front of my face. And in our system and in our culture, we're very cut off from the truth of the interdependence. Sometimes we think we can see it. It's a bit of a pitfall. There are, is true, specific companies doing harm and they have CEOs and they have customers and they have PR teams and they have Madison Avenue marketing firms. There are places we want to point to and rightfully that all of those people and all of those systems should be held to account and, and justice should be done. But to blame one CEO and hold anger and blame for that person in our hearts will miss that there are many causes and conditions which have led to the greed, aversion, and delusion holding sway in the system of which the CEO is a part. And I want to read from Biko and Elio here. The understanding can be employed to counter the assumption of mono-causality, be it consciously or unconsciously, in the sense that just a single cause is held to be responsible for a particular situation or problem. Such an assumption can easily lead to searching for a single culprit that can serve as the scapegoat for one's negativities. It can also result in overestimating one's own personal responsibility, and as a result, falling prey to sentiments of helplessness in view of the magnitude of the problem viewing oneself and others instead as co-participants in a large network of conditions can serve to counterbalance such tendencies. I find sometimes that in discussions about climate change, we get down into the weeds of this specific consequence or that specific cause or this particular remedy. And it's not that those aren't important, but I wanna encourage everyone to have some mindfulness around that because as Biguen Elia was saying, that can miss the forest you know, for the trees. You know, it's, a, it's a network, we're in it. Um, it's not this or that, and it's not me. And it's, you know, it's, it's an entire sort of system. So I'm about to go into solutions, which is the good news, but I would like to pause here, and I'm going to set my my bells, uh, my meditation bells, for just a minute, for all of us to feel into the body sensations that are going on right now.
Okay, and now on to the good news. What does Buddhism put in our toolbox for this? Okay, so the teaching of interbeing, of the, the, the earth elements, the elements being internal, external, totally the same. We can get right view on this. Just as body cannot be clung to, neither can earth but we are of it. Care for it is indistinguishable from care for ourselves. And I think we have, as Buddhists, a lot of power here because we know of our own potential impact. We know that what goes on up here has, has outward effect on others. It, it ripples out into the world. And I find that just as much a call to collective action as individual action. Because in a sense, there's no distinction. There's no barrier where you are one or the other. Uh, and that's what we understand ab about, about our interconnection is our impact on others as well. So how to meet an individual and collective problem at the same time, you know, really there's a, there's not like two different solutions to employ. If we see our interdependence as just our dependence on others, we miss the other side of that coin, which is our impact on others because of our actions springing from our intentions. So we can start with our intentions. The discourse of the world ruler teaches us we have the potential through meta and compassion to turn things around for the human civilization and for the ecosystem. We have the teachings on impermanence. We are always living in a time where change is happening. However, there are good odds that we in particular will be alive during a time of great change regarding how we live on the earth. But change is just change. Change is change. So what we bring to any kind of impermanence, we can bring to this. We also have the teaching of renunciation. Maybe not everybody's favorite. We're very privileged people. We're all on computers and we're talking about Dharma. So, you know, there's some privilege there. So uh, we want to reacquaint ourselves with the parami of renunciation, it will be part of the change. It always is. Renunciation is always part of change. But we can skillfully reach for it, seek it out as a quality to cultivate, to be ready to make change. 
we can be with the experience of the lightness of that moment of opening your hands to what was, you know, clutched before to release to the letting go, we can feel that, that ease that lifting, you know, we know what that's like. So we can use that we can lean into that experience. We have all of our amazing teachings on compassion, greed, aversion and delusion are removed through compassion and wisdom, moderated by mindfulness. We need compassion for ourselves and others as we do in all aspects of our lives to which we bring our practice. On compassion in particular, there's a bit of a snag when it comes to climate change because compassion is wishing there be no suffering. For others, climate change is uh, scary. So the enemy of compassion is cruelty. That's the opposite. But the near enemy of compassion is worldly grief, thinking into the experience of the suffering of others. And Biku Enelayo speaks to this. In the face of the catastrophic repercussions of climate change and the vast scale of suffering, avoiding this near enemy is easier said than done. Here, it can be particularly helpful to rely on mindfulness. Just as mindfulness enables being with physical pain without either switching off or else resisting, similarly, mindfulness can ease the mental pain of facing the horror of what human beings are doing to themselves and other sentient beings on this planet. Relying on mindfulness as the main tool ensures that any grief or sadness that has manifested is not being suppressed, instead it is being witnessed but not acted out. For me, what this looks like is I have to be really careful about the kinds of education that inform me about climate change, about the projections for the future, about what can be done, about what I can do, because I can overdo it. And being a witness to our grief, we can welcome it, like in Rumi's poem of the guest house, we can welcome it as a guest but not only know that it is here and it will go, but while it's here, can it remind us of the importance of acting out of love for all of our interconnected sentient beings? And I think the keeper of this guest house is wise to keep records of the guest's frequency and length of stay to learn from that. Because if I have grief and grief and grief and grief and grief, maybe I need to stop reading that particular book for now and pick up something else and come back to it. This is the, the, the wisdom, the skillfulness deployed through the mindfulness to be able to do this because it is very possible to just dive down a hole of, of climate grief. Um, and we have to be on guard for that. Touching on this issue can bring very personal anxieties of what will happen to my situation, my loved ones, my home, my other treasured places. It's true that we have many teachings that there is no my, but I wanna say that all of those personal anxieties are totally fair because threats to safety, food security, shelter, they bring up survival instinct. And we can observe these instincts arise. We cannot, we should not disallow them. We all deserve safety. Casey often tells the story of a monk who's asked, how much do I remain attached to my life? And the answer is just enough not to walk in front of a bus. Well, it's not crazy to imagine that the climate crisis is like a bus that's heading towards us. And I, that is a super dramatic visual. And I don't mean it in that way, that it's like, oh, it's a bus and it's heading for us. That's not what I mean. I wanna draw the comparison between that in Buddhism, there's not a, a disavowal of self-preservation, just like in the monk saying, oh, well, you know, I preserve myself not and don't walk in front of the bus. So even though, we have 
practices of contemplating death, that is to cultivate our non-attachment. They are not teachings antithetical to the preservation of life, our lives, life generally. So I want to acknowledge that it is okay, it is okay, all of that anxiety of, of mine for your safety that is not disavowed here. Another tool at our disposal is the middle path. The Buddha deprived himself of food, what's needed for life, and it didn't work. There are also those teachings about to be able to meditate, you're gonna to need to have the right conditions, good food and the right climate, all these things that are teachings for the monks. Personally, I find it very possible to swing from like, I can't, it's too scary, I'm busy, and then I can go to like, I can't do anything. Why, why bother? Like, it's too big. I can't help. And then in another direction, I go, oh, my gosh, people are terrible. I have to move to a farm in Montana and go off the grid. You know, I can be in all of those places. And this is when a middle path approach really helps me. It doesn't mean that I'm compromising. Like, oh, I could do X things and I'll, I'll do half, you know, because it's hard. But I want to read this, this passage that really inspires me. This is a teaching from the Discourse on the Turning of the Wheel of Dharma. The Buddha says, you should know that there are two extreme undertakings that those who are on the path should not practice. The first is attachment to sensual pleasures, which is a lowly act undertaken by the ordinary person. The second is to torture oneself and make oneself suffer which is an ignoble condition, not connected to what is beneficial. So I can watch for these extremes to stay in the middle and avoid that sort of extremist thinking that is not at all helpful. So in this project, we're gonna have you know, good days and bad days. Firstly, we, we can't do this alone. You know, we're part of a network. We still need to survive ourselves and provide for ourselves within this system as it is while being aware of it and working to change it. And it is super difficult navigation. <laughs> it's not easy. But we can think of it as like bringing mindfulness and loving kindness like we would to a really difficult relationship in life. You know, um, sometimes there's a lot of aversion to the project of bringing metta to you know a difficult person or bringing mindfulness there can be aversion there and it can be tiring but in the case of say a difficult family member I, can, I maybe can't give up they might live in my house so the strategy the tools are the same for being with this but climate change is unique in that it is really very possible to hide from it you can scroll past a climate headline you can read an entire article about it all the way to the end and not really let it in. There's so much daily need that we're all focused on every day. And this is not conversation at the grocery store. This is not, you know, openly and welcomely talked about everywhere. It is taboo in the culture. So it is super it is really hard. <laughs> it is really easy to avoid this. And the proof is in the pudding that we have been, it has been avoided for a long time. So I want to acknowledge the energy that it requires to go out and seek, seek the wisdom on this. It's, it's extra, I find it to be a lot of extra energy as compared to other places where I'm trying to bring my practice. And being mindful of time, I have one specific criticism of the Buddhist approach from David Loy, the Zen teacher. So this is an inside criticism. Um, he says, my perception is that over the last generation, Buddhists have become much better at pulling drowning people out of the river. But, and here's the problem, we aren't much better at asking why there are so many more people drowning. 
Traditional Buddhism focuses on individual dukkha to one's individual karma and craving. Collective karma and institutional causes of dukkha are more difficult to address both doctrinally and politically. And David Lloyd goes on to say that there is a mindfulness movement, which is not steeped in all of the Buddhist teachings, but uses the tool of mindfulness in more of its uses for psychotherapy, which is great. There's a lot of mindfulness around, but it doesn't have the ethics teachings, which would pull us more towards paying attention to this. So it's very possible to be a practitioner and really just focus on, you know, this suffering here. Um, so I just want to say that that is a, I think that's also something we need to be aware of. So for me, the hard work of facing this comes down to taking on a bodhisattva model. A bodhisattva is anyone who has generated bodhicitta, a spontaneous wish and a compassionate mind to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. And imagine if you could just act out of that place. So through the Ecosatva program, I took some Ecosatva vows and I'll read two to you to give you an idea. Based on my love of the world and understanding of deep interdependence of all things, I vow to live in earth more lightly and less harmfully in the food, products, and energy I consume, to commit myself daily to the healing of the world and the welfare of all beings, to discern and replace human systems of oppression and harm. So I'm setting the intention to remain aware of my interconnectedness and to act from that place without the attachment to outcomes. Dalai Lama said last September in an op-ed, the 7 billion human beings on earth need a sense of universal responsibility as our central motivation to rebalance our relations with the environment. Notice he didn't say everybody needs to, you know, buy an electric vehicle or everyone needs to stop doing X or somebody needs to do this. And it begins with our intention and our view it flows from there, however it looks whatever form that takes, it begins with the intention. It's easy to think that non-attachment to the outcomes might uh, eliminate some of the sense of urgency, but that's not true. If we're transforming our motivation, it'll happen now, right? Whatever the more skillful action is will happen now if you have transformed your motivation. I also like Joanna Macy's concept of active hope. She is a, uh, an activist. Identifying the outcomes we hope for and then playing our part in bringing them about. We focus on what we deeply long for and then proceed to take determined steps in that direction, becoming an active participant in bringing about what we hope for without attachment to the outcome. I recently read this book, uh, the world could be otherwise. Imagination and the Bodhisattva path. So imagination, you know, sometimes it's ruminating about the future, which is tricky for a Buddhist. But in this book, he argues that you can utilize imagination without a clinging to it coming true that will change your conditions in your mind and, and make you more ready to live out that sort of different vision for how the world could be. The world could be otherwise, you can sort of imagine it as a precursor to making it happen, you know, the imagine it could be otherwise, and then be the change you want to see in the world, and then the world would be different. So we can imagine what a sustainable, equitable, just world could look like. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that we don't want to dive into grief, we also don't want to dive into clinging to that imagination. But what would be the collective experience of a parami? What would be throughout the culture, the recognition of loving kindness, the embrace of, of investigation or, or, or renunciation, any of those things. We have, we have these things that we can explore and imagine what they would look like instead of you know, greed, aversion, delusion sort of being about what happens when it's the paramis instead. We, we can use this. This is good for um, you know, a thought experiment. 
we have many tools at our disposal that are Buddhist. I've talked for a very long time. So now I'd like to break out into groups, three or four. I'm gonna let Dawn break that out and then we'll come back at 11.20, maybe 11.21 and chat. Thank you guys so much. Welcome back everyone. So um, I wanna open it to the floor for whoever would like to share about what's, what's going on for them. So thank you, Kate, for wonderful teaching. Thank you. That's all. <laughs> wonderful teaching and, and uh, it was a whole lot to unpack. So thank you, Kate. <laughs> um, Kate, can you put the name of the book that you were talking about in the in the chat or the, um, I, I was trying to uh, research, you said it was like Biku, Biku, right? Biku and Elio, Biku just being a monk. Okay. okay. Thank you. Okay. Kate, I just wanted to thank you for bringing this uh, topic up. Um, it is a lot to unpack, and um, I just, I just really, really appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I um, said during our small group that I will watch this again. There was so much information and uh, thoughtfulness there. So I will watch it again. I'm glad it's recorded. And uh, I think more people need to hear this. Like, you know, Inside LA, YouTube, something. I just think it was so beautifully done and so much information. Uh, it was really well done. Thank you. Yeah, I thank you so much, Kate. Um, I'll just briefly share uh, what I shared with my group, which was that I had read Ram Dass's autobiography in January. And uh, when he co-founded the organization Seva.org, uh, you know, restoring uh, eyesight to people around the world, um, he said there was always this pull within the organization of those who saw their service as a spiritual path and those who were just like, no, we just got, we just got to get out there and do as much, you know, do as many surgeries as we can. And um, so I, I was, you know, Rick was in my group and we were talking about like, um, you know, maybe, you know, inviting Sangha to participate in more of these things. And I think that's kind of an interesting exploration of how, how do you make it a path of service and not just, uh, just the push to, to, to do something that you feel is right or, or um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, two, two gas pedals, <laughs> you know, both are yeah. going in the right direction, <laughs> you know, so the, the mindfulness needed to, to monitor uh, what's, what's mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. Thanks, Don. Um, maybe, yeah, Anthony, one more question. Yeah, can you suggest a, a good book uh, that would give uh individual recommendations for ways that we can have a smaller carbon footprint as well as community, uh, you know, suggestions. Yeah, so actually what I'd like to recommend is an app. It's uh, from, and I, can, I will find books also. Uh, it's by Peter Kalmus, who's a NASA scientist and he's created this app and it has a list and it tells you this one's easy, this one's moderate, this one's hard. But it also tells you this one has a small impact, all impacts being important, this one has a big one. And there are also recommendations for uh, guiding you to find collective action opportunities also in the app. So that's a quick one, uh, but there's a lot. Calmus, C-A-L-M-U-S? Yeah, let's see. You mind putting that in the chat for us? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Is that the name of the app or that's the name of the author? Earth Hero is the app. Peter Kalmus is the author. Okay. He, has, he has two books and he just wrote a book which is quite intense and it has some practical guidance but he takes it to a, he's completely reduced his carbon footprint um, starting in 2012. So it's taken a long time to make all those changes. He's kind of the expert Firstly, on the climatology, he studies 
clouds basically um, and their role in warming. Uh, but he's also sort of a, privately a student of reduction of his, of his carbon footprint like to the extreme. Uh, interesting book. I cannot practice all of his <laughs> all of his recommendations. He gardens. He, he feeds himself. So, um, yeah. So, so in the oh, Kate, go ahead. I, I went out and I bought a Tesla, and then a friend of mine told me, "Yeah, uh, well, you know, they got it. You have to do something with those batteries, and then and it's going to be pollution caused by your your." Uh, Lithium ion battery is going to, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, so it's mm -hmm. so confusing what to do, what to do. You know? It's super confusing and a yeah. lot of compassion is needed for those conversations because I think the person on the other side may care just as much as you do, but we are all struggling with our own understanding of the problem. And, you know, I still, having focused on this issue for a while, I still meet with new information and I have to have the humility to say, whoops, I didn't know instead of, that's not right, my worldview is set and I defend it. So it's really hard. It takes a lot of compassion for yourself in that conversation and a lot of compassion for the other person. A lot of guidance around having climate conversations is not about you know tons of CO2, how many tons of CO2 and, and whatnot, but about like, what, is, what does it mean to you? What's at stake for you? What, you know, what does it bring up for you? Would that be a different kind of a climate conversation you could have? instead of units of carbon and units of energy. Yeah, I'm hoping so, there's more information out there with this, you know, the Biden administration putting it, you know, as a priority. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe we'll get even more guidance coming from the federal government that could trickle down. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a much hopeful, much more hopeful time. Uh, Shannon raised her hand and then vanished. So um, we're there. She's a, she changed. Oh, there you are. <laughs> you moved. <laughs> okay. um, I was going to tell the whole group that you, how you and I were talking about, well, in our group, we were talking about how isolating it can be to, to kind of be, you know, like, for example, you might be the only person in your family who seems to be thinking about it. You know what I mean? And it's like, you live with these people. <laughs> and so, you know, how do you change? Like, for example, you know, you, how do you make lifestyle ch changes when like your, your immediate family doesn't seem to be considering those things, you know, you're kind of doing it on your own, you know? And so then you're like, it's just easier to just go with the flow or whatever. So, I was telling Kate how much I appreciated that she brought this conversation to this community, because at least if I have this community, that's some kind of community as opposed to nothing, you know? And as Kate was saying, we are not gonna solve this on our own. We have to work together. So I just wanna, you know, say again, that I appreciate that we have started this conversation and I hope that this conversation continues in this, community and others. Yeah, thank you so much, Shannon. And it, it is 1130, so we'll try to keep the ending uh, brief. Um, so I want to announce that uh, Lars, Rick, and I will be meeting soon, brainstorming ideas about, now that we've done this EcoSoftware program, what do we want to bring to the Sangha? What can we offer? And just a quick couple of ideas, being sharing resources, books and, and things, also, uh, maybe leading empathy circles, a place where there is no agenda, just the opportunity to share what's going on around eco-anxiety, eco-grief, and deep listening to one another in that circle, you know? Uh, and then other things like, you know, with agenda, hey, let's plan to get engaged in this way. So all types of those things are possible. And with a lot of support from Wendy and KC, uh, Lars, Rick and I are gonna start on trying to organize around that. Awesome, okay. So before I dedicate the merit, I want to say something very personal. It's quite eco, ego involved and it might not necessarily be terribly Buddhist, but I could say honestly of each of you, thank you for your practice because of what it brings 
to fruition in my life as a Sangha member with you and into this world. And my children inhabit this world. So I could say thank you for your practice on any day. But today we talked about a difficult subject. And I wonder if the sensations associated with fear or aversion were strong today. For me, they always are on this topic. So today I wanna to say thank you, especially for your bravery in contemplating this issue and bringing your practice to this issue today. Because everyone's work on this will shift the causes and conditions going forward. And when you do this work on the cushion or through reading about it or talking about it or out in the world, I'm just as grateful as if you bandaged my daughter's skinned knee, as if you helped her up. You're helping them on that level. So thank you. Okay, I'd like to do a special dedication of the merit from the Ecosatva program for today. So taking a comfortable posture. May all beings be held sacred. May all beings be cherished. May all injustices of oppression and devaluation be fully righted, remedied, and healed. May all wounds to forests, rivers, deserts, oceans, all wounds to Mother Earth be lovingly restored to bountiful health. May all beings everywhere delight in whale song, bird song, and blue sky. May all beings abide in peace, well-being, awaken, and be free. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.